This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Hello, everybody. My name is Patricia Rodriguez. I am an analyst with Control Risks looking at East Africa based in Nairobi. Today, we're going to be talking about the state of Africa's public debt. There's no doubt that the global economic impact of COVID-19 has been very severe and that the economic fallout will be felt for a really long time. Naturally, attention has turned towards Africa's economic position amid this challenging time. What has been most concerning is that over the past several years, many African governments have increased their borrowing and capital spending to finance ambitious infrastructure projects, especially in the power and transport sectors. This has been to address some severe infrastructure and logistics deficits and better cater to a rapidly growing and urbanizing population. In many countries, this increase in spending and debt repayment obligations has begun to outstrip revenue, resulting in growing public debt burdens and putting pressure on overall fiscal sustainability. These questions existed before the pandemic, but now, during the time of COVID-19, it has become even more apparent that African countries' ability to service their debt obligations are beginning to place a strain on their overall economic performance. But does this mean that the region is heading towards an overall debt crisis? What has captured media attention in recent weeks has been the case of Zambia, which has become one of the first countries to default on its debt repayment obligations in 2020. So in this podcast, we are going to explore whether or not there are other countries in sub-Saharan Africa that are likely to follow suit. To do this, I'm joined by two of my fellow analysts on the Africa team. First of all, we have Valentin Robillard. Hi, Val. Hi, Patricia. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. And Marissa Lorenzo. Hi, Patricia. Happy to be here with you today. So, Marissa, one of the first things that I mentioned was that Zambia is the country that's gaining all the international media attention. Could you give us a bit of background as to why this is the case and maybe give us a bit of an outlook of where you see this crisis in Zambia going forward? Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, the news of Zambia defaulting, as you rightly said, really pushed this question over debt into the media spotlight. And I think it raised a lot of concerns over the other trajectories of other economies that also have quite a high debt load and have been battling with this for some time. So the Zambian government on the 22nd of September, it announced that it was going to struggle to meet its repayment obligations on its three euro bonds totaling three billion US dollars, and that it was going to try to begin talks with creditors to restructure these debts to defer payments until around around April 2021. But these talks have all actually been unsuccessful. On the 13th of November, it missed the first of these scheduled payments and it has basically defaulted now. So it's it's been called Africa's first COVID default and the pandemic has definitely exacerbated the pressure the economy has been under. But in Zambia, we've actually been looking at a very precarious debt position for a while now. So it's not just COVID. Before the pandemic, Zambia's debt burden had risen really sharply. I mean, debt went from 32% of total GDP in 2014, and it reached about 89% at the end of 2019. 
and the government is now actually estimating for spending to outstrip revenue. It also has a whole lot of other debt obligations that it needs to restructure. It is an example of one of the countries that borrowed a lot to finance ambitious infrastructure developments, actually mostly in its transport sector. It owes the China Development Bank quite a significant chunk as well. It's not clear how much, and it does seem that China has allowed it to delay debt repayments for about six months until April next year. But there's a lot of uncertainty over whether or not it can even meet this deadline, and then it is likely to to default on the next upcoming payments on its current euro bonds. Of course, the economic contraction for 2020 directly from the pandemic, it doesn't help and it's going to widen the gap between spending and revenue. And again, further defaults are likely. Zambia is also going through quite a tough time because of limited engagement with the IMF. So the IMF has been concerned for a while over Zambia's ability to manage its debt. And it's also been concerned about political interference in the central bank, which really should have its independence. And what this has meant is that Zambia has never really been able to get the assistance that's needed from the IMF. It's never been able to commit to the kind of fiscal prudence that would help it get an IMF support package. And during the pandemic, it's meant that it wasn't able to tap into a lot of the relief initiatives that are being offered to low-income countries. So one example is the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, known as the DSSI, which has provided relief to around 40 low-income countries. It's supported by the G20 and the World Bank and the IMF, and it's basically suspended debt repayment obligations so that countries are then able to redirect their spending towards their COVID-19 response, whether this be for health, social, or economic measures. And this was initially supposed to be only until the end of October, between April and October this year, but it's been renewed for at least another six months and it's been providing huge relief. But this is relief that Zambia can't tap into. So between difficult negotiations with creditors, not getting enough revenue and not being able to tap into this kind of relief and a poor engagement with the IMF has really seen Zambia go through a tough year. That's really interesting, Marissa. I think Zambia is perhaps the most extreme case of some of the challenges that are facing other African economies, especially now during the downturn brought about by the pandemic. I just want to pick up on one of the points you have brought up around the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, the DSSI. That has proved to be hugely controversial, not just for countries such as Zambia or others that are facing immediate debt distress, but also others which up until the pandemic were doing fairly okay with managing their public external debt. Two countries in the region I cover in East Africa offer some really good examples. With Kenya, they've been quite hesitant to get on board with the DSSI. And that's been because of their concern about what signals that signing up to the DSSI sends to the international financial markets. Credit ratings agencies tend to view these initiatives quite negatively and therefore kind of seek to downgrade external or sovereign risk ratings for countries that do seek this external support. So that has been the main reason why countries such as Kenya have been quite reluctant to get on board with the initiative. We saw Ethiopia do that, you know, apply to the DSSI and in May had their credit rating downgraded by Moody's almost immediately, as it were. So you can see where the reluctance from Kenya is coming. However, in the recent weeks, we've seen the Kenyan government come out and say that they have been reassured that applying for the DSSI doesn't necessarily mean they will get downgraded. And so local media reports estimate that up to 650 million worth of debt repayments will be deferred by the Kenyan government. Val, if I can just bring you into this conversation here, we've been talking about you know IMF uh, initiatives as well as the economic realities facing all these different governments. Could you give us an indication of how you're seeing things in Western Central Africa? 
I'm seeing quite a lot of similarities between what you're discussing, Patricia, and what you're discussing, Marisha. In, in West Africa, there's discussions around, you know, whether it is in our interest to bring in sort of debt relief. You know, those are economies that have been traditionally more diversified, economies that have sort of maintained pretty good sort of fiscal discipline in recent years, and where there was a feeling that they'd be able to weather off this crisis maybe better than, than some other countries. And so the debate as to whether we want that, that sort of debt relief, debt suspension for the next few months, and, and the implication that it would carry with rating agency and their ability to borrow on the national markets is very, it's very much a debate in the region. Central Africa seems a little closer to what some of the things that Marissa was discussing, you know, economies that are very much oil dependent that have had issues sort of leading from 2014, 2016 onwards with the slump in oil prices then sort of took quite a bit of time to sort of recover from, from that crisis and work with the IMF since then and are now hit with this sort of second crisis and where the discussions on, you know, are we able to, to, to weather that crisis and, and, and what kind of debt situation we're getting ourselves into. So it's two very different pictures, which I think resembles some of the contrast you're seeing between, you know, Eastern and Southern Africa in some ways as well. Thanks, Val. And if you had to pick a single country in West and Central Africa, which one do you think investors should be looking at more closely? Should they be more concerned about when it comes to assessing sovereign risks? The one country that's sort of been in the news the past few years when it comes to debt has been Congo-Brazzaville, obviously an oil-dependent economy that has been struggling with the slump in oil prices since 2014-2016 and onwards. Came out a few years ago that its debt had reached 100% of GDP, some of which was somewhat opaque as it was due to China and to private creditors, and the IMF didn't really have visibility as to you know how this was structured. So it took Congo some three years to get an agreement with the IMF to get a support program in. And when they got the program in a couple months later, the IMF suspended payments, citing lack of progress in, in, in some debt restructuring and some, some governance issues. And so Congo is again, I think last year or a couple months ago, Fitch came out with uh, you know debt had was again standing at about 100 and 17% of GDP, they you know, are looking at this sort of debt relief from the Club of Paris and other, and other creditors, but because that debt is owed to China and private creditors, and we're not quite sure how it's structured and what kind of deals are happening, the concern over, over sort of debt sustainability is still very much uh, present. And same question over to you, Marissa. In Southern Africa, which, which country do you think is going to make the same kind of headlines? I mean, aside from Zambia. Well, just going on, you know, on what Val was saying about countries with debt of over 100% of GDP and looking at oil producing economies, Angola really, really stands out. Its debt to GDP ratio is actually expected to reach about 121% this year. And its gross government debt has climbed really, really steeply in recent years. And this has been the result of extensive borrowing to support infrastructure development and spending outstripping revenue. And it's really struggled since the oil price crash of 2014. And its economy is in 2020, expected now to contract for the fifth consecutive time. And it's mainly because of the ongoing slump in the oil price uh, since oil went into negative territory in April, as the pandemic has delayed production in the country's oil sector. Angolan economy is so reliant on oil for foreign exchange earnings as its main export, and the sector counts around a third of total GDP. And this just makes it really heavily exposed to global shocks. Having said that, though, to date, it has managed to negotiate its debt servicing obligations quite effectively. It's managed to negotiate with its primary creditor, China, and its primary lender, the IMF. So the government in June reduced oil shipments to China, which it had been using as collateral for an estimated 20 billion US dollars worth of loans. And while not a great agreement, at least it has provided Angola with a bit more oil to sell over 2020, which will help 
boost export earnings at a really critical time. And the IMF in September actually approved a disbursement of one billion US dollars under its extended facility arrangement that it had agreed upon with Angola in 2018. It's actually supported Angola with a total of four billion US US dollars since then. And we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, as Angola was beginning talks, the IMF delayed the payment. And this was most likely due to concerns over the sustainability of the debt, especially on how Angola is going to manage its debt to China, how it's going to manage those debt repayments. And the details of the deal with China or the deal with the IMF were actually not really available. But we think that because the IMF eventually did agree to release the last billion, it suggests that China is also likely to have granted further relief to the government. China typically operates on a case-by-case basis, and it's quite difficult to predict how it is going to handle debts with countries that it has lent a lot of money to. But what we can see so far is that the IMF appears to be quite confident that the government will continue to demonstrate fiscal prudence. Of course, sovereign risks still remain high, especially if the oil price had to drop below $35 a barrel. But for now, Angola's one to watch. It seems like it's not going to renege on its debt, but definitely one of the the high risk ones. And I think one of the big ones going into 2021, and especially as the pandemic stays with us for a long time. So what I'm hearing from both of you is that there's two main factors that we need to be watching. One is on how governments are able to engage with their external creditors and mostly how governments are engaging with China, who holds an outsized proportion of African government's debt. And then the second thing is the African governments that are perhaps more resource dependent. If I can flip that question on its head, and I'll I'll start by answering my own question. Which countries do you think might be weathering the storm a little bit better? For me, in East Africa, there's a lot to be said across East African economies because we don't have that same kind of oil dependency or or resource dependency that perhaps we're seeing in in other parts of sub-Saharan Africa. So Uganda, Kenya and Tanzania are doing pretty okay. I don't think anybody's doing very well at the moment, but that's because they don't have this huge reliance on one sector and the diversification of their economies has worked well to their advantages. So as a kind of final or parting shot, Val, are there any countries that you think are managing their sovereign risks well? And do you think that's a fair point to link it to the the state of their economies diversification? Yeah, in West Africa, generally, the more diversified economies, you know, such as Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, the two sort of economic powerhouses in Francophone West Africa, they seem more able to weather off this crisis. Maybe there's a bit more optimism. You know, it doesn't mean that there isn't challenges in those two countries. You know, Senegal is just starting up its oil and gas sector, which obviously now is, is facing a bit of delays because of, because of the crisis. Cote d'Ivoire this year had a pretty tense election with some investors kind of pausing and seeing how the selection cycle is playing out. Uh, but we can look at the economic fundamentals and, and generally, you know, economies that are attracting more than just oil and gas, there's generally a bit more uh, optimism as to as the long-term trajectory. And Marissa, what about you? We've been quite dire when talking about Southern Africa with both Zambia and Angola. Are there any bright spots that you see in Southern Africa in the coming year? I'm sad to say that I don't see any particular bright spots. But what I will say is that South Africa is the most diversified economy, probably has the best chance of withstanding the pandemic. 
This is probably a bit of a controversial view. It has been hit very, very hard by it. It has a very developed retail sector, which of course suffered from the very restrictive lockdown that the country was put under at the very beginning of the pandemic. But again, South Africa has a very good relationship with a lot of its creditors. It's able to borrow at very favorable rates. Its debt burden is going to climb steeply over the next few years, but it's not one of those countries that I think we have to worry about overall sustainability over the next one to two years. We've also seen the more kind of re- reform-minded, more business-friendly side of government really being able to entrench their authority since the outbreak of the pandemic, which has been really positive overall for more fiscal consolidation measures being introduced. There's going to be a lot of pushback on them, especially as unemployment rises and trade unions have a really strong voice. But I do think that South Africa's diversified economy will shield it to some extent and that eventually we will see a kind of recovery It's also worth noting that a lot of South Africa's debt is denominated in local currency, which really protects it against currency fluctuations, especially against the US dollar, which then eases its repayment obligations. So not a, not a bright picture overall. A lot of the, a lot of the countries in Southern Africa are quite commodities reliant and there's been a lot of global supply chain disruptions. There's been a lot of demand disruptions. So I think that's why I'd kind of have to pick South Africa because of that. This brings us quite nicely around to the end of our podcast. I think the the clear messages here are that, yes, that sovereign risks are rising across sub-Saharan Africa, but perhaps we're not hurtling towards a full-blown debt crisis. We're unlikely to see a repeat of the 1990s lost decade. And this is largely, as my colleagues and I have been discussing, due to the greater diversification of African economies. Where we're a little bit less optimistic is where we have economies such as Angola, such as Congo, which are heavily resource reliant or reliant on the oil sector in particular. And this is where most of our concern will be in the coming year. I think to finish on a kind of more positive note, we must acknowledge the fact that African governments are doing pretty well to handle the pandemic, considering the limited resources that they have available to them. Yes, the pandemic is straining their finances, but their quick responses has helped to contain the spread of the virus and has also helped to limit the impact on healthcare capacity, which is quite limited to begin with. So I think there is some cause for cautious optimism in in 2021, although, of course, mindful that sovereign risks will be rising across the entire continent. And on that note, I'd like to thank Marissa and Val for joining me on today's discussion. Thank you very much and goodbye. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.